Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. You know, as we finish the book of Torah, we say, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazek. May we be strong, strong, and strengthened so that we can continue our studies and move on uh, to the next book. So uh, we don't take for granted this morning that we are strong enough, all of us, to be here uh, to begin together our study of the book of Bamidbar. So again, for me, it's my fifth time with you all beginning the book of Bamidbar. And uh, we're glad that we have our Rabbi Renner uh, as part of our community, part of our learning community, uh, to be to be starting the book of Numbers for the first time here at KI. So we're uh, starting the book of Bamidbar, and uh, Bamidbar means what? Wilderness. In the wilderness, right? Midbar, wilderness. Don't worry about a page yet. I'll tell you when it's time. Everybody's starting to, where is she, where is she? Um, <laughs> you know, at the beginning of a book, I talk for a while. Um, so we're starting Bamidbar in the wilderness. So what we had uh, the book. What was the book just before this? Leviticus. Almost. Um, yes, Leviticus. So Leviticus is inserted. So you'll remember that that originally it was the not Pentateuch but Tetratuch. Yeah, we've talked about this before. So we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy, yeah? Yes. Okay, good. So you know that this book gets inserted. The narrative that ends the book of Exodus begins the book of Numbers. This is a com- Leviticus is a complete insert into the four books. Uh, and uh, actually the end of Numbers got moved and put to the end of Deuteronomy when Deuteronomy got added. Yes. So, used to be Genesis, Exodus, Numbers was kind of the the narrative history of our people. Um, the Deuteronomist gets put in here, and the end of Numbers gets chopped off and put at the end of Deuteronomy, which is the death of Moshe and the appointment of Joshua. So, even though we we just are coming out of the Book of Leviticus, we are picking up the narrative from the end of Exodus. Yeah? What happened at the end of Exodus? Do we even remember that far back? Do we have any clue? We left. We left. Excellent, Sarah. We left slavery. We left Egypt, yeah, and had this amazing experience of we received the Torah. So we have the experience of Sinai, right? That is kind of the, you know, this is the the, the major experience uh, of revelation of why we were freed. To just be free is not a value in Torah. Freedom in and of itself is not the point, right? Um, I am Adonai, your God, Asher Hotseti Edchem Me'eretz Mitzrayim, who took you out of the land of Egypt, Lihiyot lachem le'elohim. It doesn't stop at who took you out of Egypt. Lihiyot lachem le'elohim. To be for you, God. I took you out of Egypt. I took you into freedom so that you would have the freedom to choose me (laughs) over everything else. Because when you were in Egypt, Pharaoh told you what to do, who to worship, how to be. Yeah? Now that you are free, you are free to enter a covenantal relationship. Only free people can enter into a covenant. Right? Otherwise it's, it's forced. It's coerced. Then it's not, by definition, really covenantal. So it's not choice. I mean, there might be obligations on both sides, but, but if it's imposed, it's slavery of some kind. Right? Ideological slavery, philosophical slavery, theological slavery. Um, whatever we want to call it. So only free people can enter into this covenantal relationship, which is uh, the paradigmatic you know, moment is Sinai. So God's presence, what happens at Sinai? God's presence descends onto the mountain, right? When God's presence descends onto the mountain, tell me about what happens to the mountain. 
It's covered in When God's presence comes down, there's a bunch of disruptions, right? And the people can see collote. They see they see sound. I've never done it, but has anybody ever done LSD? Right? So you you it's an alternate reality. It's an altered state that they see thunder. They see voices. So, so it's that kind of just dis- again a disruption of the normal state of things. All right, but tell me about the mountain itself when God's presence comes down on it. What about the mountain itself? Smoking. So that's a visible thing. What? Shaking. Everything's kind of. The mountain itself becomes supercharged. So it is. Let's use language that would make it, you know more understandable. We've used that a lot in here. The mountain becomes nuclear. Right? And if something is nuclear, do we want to approach it? And be close to it? No, we don't. Right? And God says, keep the people away from the mountain. Because if they breach this, they will die. If they breach this barrier, they will die. Only Moshe who has the hazard gear, right? The hazmat suit. Only Moshe in his hazmat suit can go up the mountain. So, so this is to protect against encroachment, right? And we're talking about encroachment, not meaning it's mine so you can't be on it because I own it. God owns everything, right? When we think encroaching, we think private property, right? Or, you know, my private, my, you know, space, my personal space, right? That This is not about that. This is about encroachment, meaning in the cultic sense, that it's off limits. So we say nuclear, and that, that implies dangerous. I don't want to, I don't want to imply that because God's presence comes down on it, it's by definition dangerous, meaning bad, which nuclear can kind of imply, right? You know, so, but it's, it's dangerous for regular people. When when God's presence is super present, very articulate. When God's presence is super here, we have to treat that place differently. Right? It just it's different. It has to be treated with weight. It has to be treated with care. And we know, we know about the relationship, right, between weight, right? Good. I love this group. Between weight and respect and presence and glory, they're all part of the same term in Hebrew. Kaved, heavy. Kavod, God's glory. Significance. Significance, weightiness, respect, right? Kavod, you know, you were honor your mother and father. You don't have to love them. You have to treat them as if they are kaved, as if they are weighty in your life. So, so kaved, kavod, that, that's how we have to deal with a place where we know God's presence is. All right, so what happens at the end of the book of Exodus? We get Sinai in portable form. We get the Mishkan. So, not only do we get the Mishkan, but what happens right at the end of the book of Exodus? We have the Mishkan. We, it's good that I didn't try to become an artist. So we have the Mishkan, and we have the Mishkan divided, right, into the different sections. And we have the Holy of Holies, and... At the end of the book of Exodus, God's presence descends. Right? This is exactly parallel to Sinai. The Sinai experience becomes portable. What happened, that moment of God's presence coming down, the presence of God is now among the people, but the people have to move on. They can't stay at Sinai. They can't stay at that ultimate experience, that ultimate moment of ultimate intimacy. First of all, it was overwhelming for them. They said, Moshe, you go. We can't deal. 
you go. So it's overwhelming, but also it's not real life. What are they supposed to do? You know, they're set Sinai, they get revelation. What's the point of revelation? What's the point of that encounter? To to transform them from a bunch of slaves to an Am Kadosh, a people living in right relationship to the divine, a different kind of relationship with the divine, and then what, what, what are they supposed to do with that? Well, we're, we're now an Am Kadosh, okay. <laughs> and they have to take it with them. They have to live it. They have to take it with them. And it moves from past tense to present tense. And, very nice, moving from past tense to present tense. How do they take it with them? If they can't Right, Sinai is going to stay where Sinai is, presumably. It's a pretty big mountain. It's the portable shrine. It's the Mishkan. They build God, right, according to, to some beautiful um, Talmudic teachings. They build God, a, essentially, a throne that they carry. You know, if you want to take the king or the queen with you, you build her a throne that is portable, right? And you carry her. That is what they do with the Mishkan. Everything is portable and they carry God's presence with them through their schlepping through the desert. How long are they supposed to be in the desert? How long are they supposed to be in the desert? A few days. A week. Ten days. Two weeks. Three week cruise. Whatever. So they are supposed to be for a very short time in the desert. How come? It's not that far. To where? To the promised land. It's not that far to the promised land. They're supposed to live it. They're supposed to take it with them to the promised land. That's the point of Sinai. Not to hang out at Sinai. We don't have monasteries. The point is not to hang out in the monastery when Unio Mystico, whatever it is, right? In mystical union with God. That's That's not the point. That's not Jewish. We may be tempted to do that. We might need to do that regularly, like once out of every seven days, let's say. Like we're supposed to do that. But but that's not Jewish. You have to take that with you. You have to take that experience and do something with it. Live it. So they're supposed to take it with them to the promised land because this is the Am Kadosh that's going to build a new society. Right? It's not supposed to be a 40-year death march. That was never the idea. So as uh, Aviva Zornberg says, um, this could look like a colossal failure. The whole book of Numbers is a colossal failure. It is an epic retelling of our worst failure, and it's the story of a 40-year death march. That's one way to look at it. Jory, did you ever hear that? No, no. Okay. Um, careful how you move in here because you will get called on. <laughs> That's not happy, Bert says, right? Um, so, so, so this, so this Mishkan and God's presence descending is how we end Exodus because the people are supposed to now, not they have a way now to take this with them, right? And all of all of the Sinai experience is transposed onto a military arrangement moving through the desert in order for them to take the promised land and create a society built on the values that are expressed at Revelation. Yeah? The the midbar is the transition to from slavery to becoming citizens of this voluntary covenantal relationship expressed through this new society in their own sovereign land. That was the original vision. It turns out to be the the truth still. It is the transition. It was just a lot longer transition than anticipated. We have that expression, wandering Jew. Did that come from there or from the diaspora, from the later? Yes and yes. In Hebrew, gam v'gam, right? Here's the paradigmatic wandering um, that is part of our retelling, and once we are no longer in our in, sovereign in our land, we become the wandering Jew, and the pathos and tragedy of that certainly is an echo of this. They never made a movie called Numbers. 
They, they, they did not make a movie called Numbers. Um, they did not. So the so the the traveling through the the midbar that we are beginning now is a military movement because it's an open place. It's a vulnerable place. You have women and children. You have men who are not able to fight. You must protect them. You must defend them. And if you're moving through an open place like the midbar, that means you better you better arrange yourself in such a way that you're ready to defend. And that means you have to know a little bit about what's going on with your numbers. <laughs> so bamidbar, <laughs> nice, huh? So bamidbar in the wilderness is absolutely the apt name for this book, right? And it is how the rabbis refer to this book. They also, though, call it Sefer Pikudim, the book of countings, the book of numbers. Why? How did this name, how did this book get this name? Starts with the census. Starts with the census and contains two more censuses. Sensei. Sensei. Is it sensei or censuses? Sensiot. So, um, (laughs) sensim. So we have, um, we have a census right at the very beginning and then we get another census and still another census. So you got to count. Why do you have to count if you're in a military situation? You have to know who's going to fight for you. You have to know who's going to fight for you. So you have to know, Moshe has to know as the general, or is that the highest you can get as general? Commander in chief, maybe. Commander in chief. No, that's God. So, but you're right. I mean, you're right. The highest is commander in chief. So the commander in chief, God, right, kind of sets the, here's what's got to happen. Fight, don't fight, you know, whatever. But Moshe's the general who has to carry those orders out. And as the general, Moses needs to know how many people he has to deploy for any certain part of the mission. You have the Navy, you have the infantry, you have, right, the tank division, you have the Air Force. You've got to know how much you've got in each of those fighting forces to be able to accurately and effectively deploy them. Right? All right. I think you also need to know if you've lost anybody. You need to know if you've lost anybody. Yeah. Talk to me about that. If you're, if you're in a dangerous kind of situation, you've got 20 people, and then you go through some travail, you want to know if you still have 20 people. And if you lost some people along the way. So then it might be interesting to see when exactly they get counted. Right? Is it and and we're told often in Torah how many people died as a result of whatever calamity just happened, and it's generally not military. How do so many people get wiped out in the midbar? Well, plagues. There was some yeah, plagues. and how does that happen? They Why are there plagues? Stuff. They, did bad, <laughs> they stuff. did bad stuff. Right? So interestingly, the most dangerous part of the schlepping, military schlepping through the desert turns out not to be the enemy. It turns out to be ourselves. Our own behavior is what gets us into the most trouble in the Midbar. Rabbi Renner. So play with the military thing for a second. It's also worth pointing out this isn't the first time they've seen combat as a group. We actually get that in Exodus way back when. Yeah, and tell me about what happened in that situation. So with that, we get the introduction of Joshua. This is the episode of Amalek, where Amalek ambushes the people on the way, and Moshe is praying for the people, and Joshua acts as sort of, I don't know, a field commander or something, and they slay Amalek with the sword, and depending on whether Moshe is um, lifting his hands up in uh, devotion to God or not. Um, but ultimately, they do prevail over Amalek, and you get that injunction to wipe out Amalek, to block them out. Yes, because Amalek cheats. Amalek, Amalek is involved in dirty warfare, war right? Um, war crimes. Amalek attacks from the back. Amalek attacks a surprise attack on the infirm, the old and the sick, and the weak and the little ones. And then we're always told to remember to forget Amalek. Remember, <laughs> wipe out the name of Amalek. Remember, remember. what Amalek did to you. Okay, uh, wipe they, out the name of Amalek and Zahor, mm-hmm. and remember. Okay, it, it always seemed to me that while this is accounting, the Torah could have just said 
and there were this many people, that it's not so much the number of people as the family relationships and the fact that all of the people in the families and the clans matter than that it was 500 or 600 or whatever. All right, don't steal my thunder, (laughs) Bert. I was speaking here the other night at the ECC and making some strident point, and all of a sudden it went... And that's when the storm started, and then I was doing something else, paused, and and here came the hail against the window, and I just said, you see? And we, we had that report. It did happen. It's on the podcast. All right, so um, it was very distracting, actually. It was like, I could have stayed there for a while. All right, so here we go with the first commandment to count the people because it is always God who initiates the counting. And if it's not God that initiates the counting, what happens? (laughs) Generally a safe answer when we're dealing right with Torah and the Israelites. Bad things happen. Really bad things happen when the counting is initiated by people, right? If it's initiated by God, it's to Bert's point that we're going to get to, there's a different character to the counting. When it's done by people, what do you think the danger of counting by people is? People counting people. What's the danger? So it depends who you're counting. If you say we're only counting these people, that could imply they are more valuable than the other people. What were you going to say? That, okay, Solomon says the same thing. Taxes. The danger is taxes? Yeah. <laughs> talk, talk to me that's about what, that. That's what usually happens in, in Europe again and again. The king said count on that, and that was just to figure out how much money could raise. So one of the dangers is if you know I exist, now you can Grab my money. You can take something from me. Right. In English, when we, a person can say this person counts, the meaning that they matter. Significant matter. So that, is that goes the same to this. Is that the same in Hebrew? That that if you can say a person counts and it's the same word as to count, or is it? Or is that just an English thing? I, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but right. I can't think of a, a, a way to talk about somebody that you'd use a right. Hebrew word for counting to English, say they matter. It's more about kaveh. Yeah. yeah, in English it's common. The counting only happened for battle purposes? I mean, I'm thinking of like when you have people to dinner or something. You have to count how many people you're going to feed. You have to count how many robes you're going to have to weave out of sand. I don't know what they did. (laughs) Out of dolphin skin. Um, So God doesn't seem to need that information, right, about how many people there are, Bichlal, in general, just because they need to be fed. It seems to matter when it comes to military stuff, and it matters around taxation. It matters that each of them has to give half a shekel, Mm -hmm. right? So each of them has to contribute. Um, It doesn't seem to be about information for God. There are other times in, not so much in Torah, but in other parts of the Bible in general, you know, past the five books where there are countings more about population stuff, but... Not not so much in the five books, Paul. And maybe it has to do with the distribution of resources. Mm-hmm. Okay. That has a lot of to do with the census of, of how the United States government. So the, that's to the population question. If I know the population and its distribution, mm-hmm. then I know how to distribute maybe the central resources that I have. Mm-hmm. Right? There's more people in Chicago, in this part of Chicago, then we're going to give more money there or whatever. That would seem to indicate that the counting has nothing to do with sustaining life. Okay, so this is important. It doesn't have anything to do with sustaining life just because you need to know the number to be fed. This is miraculous. Everything that happens in the Midbar, God provides. Provision is not the issue. They have mana. There will be enough mana always for whoever needs it. That is not the issue. Tell me the danger in counting. People counting people. Why is it bad? Please, Rabbi Renner. So I'm thinking about Shoftim and also modern Lebanon, um, where these are places where there are a lot of internal divisions, and that if one group of people sees that they have more than another group, they might decide they want to take some kind of forceful action to take their resources to wipe them out to whatever. 
we're reading that they haven't conducted a census in Lebanon because of all of those groups in the Civil War and whatever since like the 1920s. Um, and this comes up again, like I said, in Shofti, where we have all the warring tribes and such. So you can actually foment a lot of internal uh, conflict just in counting. So just in talking about who has more numbers than somebody else, you can start to set up a sense of danger, a sense of competition, a sense of, wait, they have 3,000 and we have 1,700? Already now, that can set something up about my anxiety, you know, and, and, and the kind of anxiety that leads to, to conflict. This isn't information for God, because ostensibly no. God would know how many people Correct. there are. Correct. That, which is where, where we're going to go next, Robert. Which, if you're just a number, you're not a Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The danger of humans counting humans is the danger of the Shoah. Is the danger of dehumanization. Anytime you count people you are reducing them to a quantity. You are reducing them to a number. You stop being Sarah Moskovitz and start being number seven. Of whatever, of Torah study group, of whatever, right? I've told you before, we don't count, traditionally in Hebrew, you don't count, not in Hebrew, um, traditionally in Jewish practice, you don't count people. You use a verse of Torah that is 10 words long, so you know if you have a minion, right? So I might say Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, right? So I I never say one, two, three, God forbid, because we never reduce people to a number. But that was feeling before the Shoah. No, yeah, yeah. It's this early. It's this early. It seems basic to the Israelite way of viewing the world that we are never to be reduced to numbers. So whenever humans originate the census or whatever whatever they initiate the census there's a plague it's they're punished it's horrible because it seems when god is counting and we're going to get to again this issue of why god counts but it seems that god counts because god loves the people and it's like like uh the rabbis liken it to uh royalty with their treasury Right? You know, that what is precious to us, we count. And we belong to God, and so God lovingly counts us. We're going to see another interpretation of what counting is about. Mickey? In our own uh, modern times, uh, Jeremiah uh, Jeremiah is the same thing. <laughs> yes, right? Exactly. All right. So the first census that we get is right at the beginning of the book, right at the beginning of the book of Numbers. I've given you the verse here. A lot of this teaching that I'm about to do is based on uh, the teaching of Rabbi Meir Schweiger from Pardes in Jerusalem. You can listen to the podcast yourself um, at pardesusa.org. So the first census, here, here's what we're getting for the language around counting. So let's look at that pasuk. Let's look at that sentence. Se'u et rosh kol adat b'nei Yisrael l'mishpachotam. Levet avotam b'mispar shemot kol zachar l'gul golotam. Yes? Se'u et rosh kol adat b'nei Yisrael. Literally, what does this mean? Se'u et rosh. Literally means... Yeah, what about the... So this is head. This is a pointer word, right? Et is a indirect, we're going to get the object, right? So et is just a pointer word. What you're going to, what you're talking about, head. What, what is the verb? Lift. Mm-hmm. Right? When we talk about the Yom Kippur liturgy, no se avon. No se avon Okay? Who lifts up sin, meaning off of us. Se'u et Rosh, lift up the head of all the community of Israel. Okay? So, doesn't say count. It says lift up the head of every member of the community of Israel. Right? So, from 20 years and 
up. Yes? Kol Yotzei Tzava Yisrael. What is Yotzei Tzava? I cannot print to save my life. To go forth, Mickey, how? It's not just go forth. That's the Yotzei. Aha. Yotzei Tzava. To go out. Tzava. What is Tzava? Army. Army. To go out, meaning to go out to the army. Because what does the army do? Goes out to fight. So, so what does this seem to imply? 20 years and up, all who go out to the army, tifkadu otam, now we're getting a counting word. Tifkadu, code. count them, right? Okay, what does this seem to imply? What is this counting for? The strength of your army. The strength of your army. Your fighting force. 20 years and up. 20 years, you, you join the army at 20. You're, you're eligible at 20 to fight. So 20 years and up, everybody who Yotzei Tzavah goes out to the army to fight. Tifkaduotam. You shall count them. Okay, that seems pretty straightforward. You're about to embark on a military mission. It makes perfect sense that you better count your able-bodied fighting people. Your soldiers. Okay. With exceptions. Ah. With exceptions. <laughs> What's the exception, Mickey? Well, if you just got married, you had to send a word with you. So later we're going right. to see some people who are exempted from military service. If they have gotten married and haven't lived with their bride for a year, if, uh, or if they, no, if they just got married, if they haven't lived in their, they built a house and they haven't lived in it for a year. Um, just planted a field. and haven't harvested it yet. Um, these people are exempt from military service. Well, right from the start, it's just the males anyway, so all the women are excluded. Correct. Women are exempted, presumably, from Yotzei Tzava, from being people yeah. who are expected to go out to Tzava, to the army. Right? All right. So, who is exempted in this counting? Women. So, people under 20? The tribe. By definition, thank you, Sarah. Explicitly, who is it, who is told to not be counted in this census? The tribe of women. Why? Because they take care. They take care of the They are not presumably going to be going out to the army. They have a different job. What is their job? They take care of the mishkan. If you want to talk about having a job, if you want to talk about having a role in Hebrew, you talk about tafkid. Mayor Rabbi Mayor Schweiger says, "There's no way you can convince him." that there's not a wordplay by Torah here. A very important wordplay on count, tifkidu, and tafkid, role. There's different roles that people have, and they count. They all count. So here is, in a way, the Hebrew that you were asking about. Tafkid Role, having a job, having a, I don't want to say job, that sounds so for us worky, like, you know, paid work. Having a function, a special, a purpose, thank you, perfect. Because function, right, yes, so you have a purpose. And this counting isn't about just a mass, it's about purposing people. Yes? Which is, to Bert's point earlier, what's the, what, why count? Yes, you need to know the strength of your military. But God forbid we think that means you're a number. You're disposable. The Hebrew is tifkidu otam. Don't just enumerate them. There is a Hebrew word for that. 
That's not the word that's used in Torah. And Rabbi Meir Schweiger, pointing to earlier teachings of the Nitziv, says that is on purpose. The Torah doesn't say number them. It says purposefy them. <laughs> right? That they matter. Laura. Once again, the wisdom of this just for <laughs> modern application is really rings with me. I think about how, and, I, and I'm sure there's a lot written in psychology with, you know, when we read about refugees from Bangladesh now or wherever they're coming from, 65,000 unaccompanied minors came to America last year. Too many. It's too many to care. But if you know Maria, or you know a person who came, then it matters. But the numbers, the counting, it doesn't connect. So one of the things Laura's pointing to when she says, if you know Maria, is the Diamond family took in somebody who was in this country without anybody to protect them. She lives with them now. So why? Because they got an email from somebody, from your mom, who got an email from somebody else who said Maria's here and she really is desperate for an education. She's amazing. She's She sur- has survived so much. And if she doesn't find a place, she can't go to school. And she's likely to be thrown out of this country and turned away after everything she's fought for to be here. If you know that, you are so much more likely to say, well, not most of us, but the Diamonds said, we have an extra bedroom. We have room. We have the ability to feed one more mouth. So we have to do something. So that is a very, very important point, that numbers can be completely overwhelming, not just dehumanizing because you're reduced to just a number, but but when the numbers are huge, you don't care. Because it's number, you're talking about an overwhelming, staggering amount, learned helplessness. There's nothing I can really do about 40,000 foster children in L.A. I can do something for a Maria. There's been some psychological Re- research. Rabbi Renner? Um, I think Torah says that too, actually. I'm looking at the very, what I think is the first mention of that word, Pakad, in Torah, in Rashid. Um, Adonai Pakad et Sarah. It starts out as a personal thing. It's Adonai taking account of Sarah, just as she had this special role, this very particular thing that was all about her. That word pops up right before she has Isaac. Right. That's the very beginning of this counting, this accounting word. Is We're supposed to see it as personal in that way. It's part of this very, very one-on-one personal relationship. Nice. So when God pakads, it's good. Mm-hmm. When God pakads you, it's good. We have to be careful when people pokade, right? Um, but, right, and this is actually the language that gets inserted by some of the progressive Jewish traditions in the Amidah, right? Because the traditional Amidah just has Magain, you know, Avraham, the, you know, and it's Magain Avraham, Pokade Sarah. God, when you're going to add Sarah into the blessing of the Amidah, of the Tefillah, in our liturgy, you're going to add her. You have to add what God did for her. God was the magain, the shield of Abraham. What did God do for Sarah? Upokade Sarah. God took note of Sarah. And then what's the highest form of women achieving their purpose in the biblical stories? Have, giving birth. So when God pokades her, she is fruitful and delivers Isaac. There was actually some psychological research done a number of years ago trying to determine how people reacted to other people's pain. And when they showed people, you know, when it was like hundreds or thousands of people, there wasn't a lot of empathy. But there was empathy, I I forget what the number was, I think it was two or three or four, it was some very, very small number, and then above that people just kind of shut down. And we see it every we see it every day on the news. I mean, you know, today, you know, you see what's happening in Syria. You see what's happening in Africa. And someone says, you know, like what we're seeing. You know, you got fifty thousand, sixty thousand, a hundred thousand, a million. We can't deal with that. But you show one starving child, or you show one crying mother, and that's something people really relate to. 
But anyway, it was psychologically they proved that that's just the way human brains work. Right. Should maybe it shouldn't work that way, but that's the way it works. Right. Joel. Well, my when I hear you, my feeling is like, okay, if somebody has a problem, maybe I can help. Mm -hmm. Like if there's direct relation, Mm -hmm. if there's hundred of people in big trouble, it's so way too big for me that I should. Right. So that's what we were talking about: learned helplessness. Right. I'm. I'm helpless. We learn this response of I'm helpless rather than if someone comes to you in distress, you feel like I might have agency, I might be efficacious in in changing the situation. You know, 600,000, okay, forget about it. Already I'm nothing. I I have no ability. Can you talk a bit more about this word, so lift your head? Because it's not count. Yes. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) Moving on because that's where we're going. All right. So turn your paper over. So the Levites don't go out to, to the army because they have another job, yes? So let's look at verse 50. Again, this word, hefkeid. What's hefkeid? If you take pakad, this word that God does to Sarah, right, this noticing, take note of, pakad, count, in, in this sense, count, Rollify them, right? So, if you put a hay in front of that, hefkade, what does that make it? Rabbi Renner knows what we do if you put a hay in front of something and make it he feel. It makes it a definite article. No, that's ha. And that's in front of a noun. Yes, you're right. That's in good. In front of a noun, it's the something. Put a hay in front of a verb in this kind of a way and what do you get? You get the causative. He feel is causative. What does that mean? <laughs> Translation, right? So hefkade italavim is purposify them. How would you say that in English? Rollify them. How would you say that? Make em- their role. Empower them. Give their purpose as make their Get, purpose. make their role be. Cast them? Cast them. Yes. Oh, nice. Cast them as? Appoint as, them to. Appoint them to. Lovely. That's how it's translated a lot, actually, Sarah. Exactly. Appoint. Appoint them to be. Appoint them to be, which means give them the role of. Make Tell them their purpose is to be. So, you're going to give them a role, a purpose. What is it? Mishkan Ha'edut. They're gonna rollify on the Mishkan, on the tabernacle, the Al and all its appurtenances. Is often how you see that translated. All its furniture, all its all its kelav, all its vessels. We as rabbis are called clay kodesh. We are called holy vessels, right? We are utensils. We are holy utensils. All right, so... Well, is it the utensils or the furniture? He's picturing a spoon now. <laughs> <laughs> a knife. It, it, for, um, is it utensils or furniture? It's not furniture. It's, it's everything that you need that you use to, that you that use you to use make the things the happen that make yeah, the Mishkan right. functional. The stuff. I like utensils. Because it involves holding, and what you're doing is holding a community and emptying some of what you have into them. As always, (laughs) the poets among us say it so much more beautifully. Um, so, So you are appointing them as having this role on, meaning as related to the Mishkan, and all of its appurtenances and utensils, the alcohol asher asherlo, and everything kind of you know belonging to it, associated with it, hema. So yisu et hamishkan. Yes. What are they going to do with the mishkan? Yisu et hamishkan. Ha! They're going to. Carry it. 
Yes? Again, Rabbi Schweiger points out it's the same word as su'u at Rosh B'nai Israel. They're going to lift up the Mishkan. The same way we get the word to lift up the head. Everybody has their role. Every role is critical. Yes? It's the same word. Lifting up the head or lifting up the Mishkan. Everybody's got their job. Yes? All right. What do they mean by lift up the head? Is it meant pick your pick the head up like this so you can see it's, it? It seems that the idea of counting, because you're going Yotzei Tzava to be people who go out to the army, doesn't mean you're disposable. It means you have the dignity of a role. You have a purpose, because the same word is used of what the Levites are supposed to do for the Mishkan. So it can't be that you're disposable and nothing, and so we're going to count you and send you out. It can't be, says Rabbi Schweiger, which I believe we know Torah well enough to know the beauty of the wordplay and the parallels. Yes? It's purposeful, he says, that this language is used in both places. Both roles are critical. The Levites are the one... Oh. I'm so ahead of myself. All right, so drop down to to 16, where it says verse 16. Oh, no, that's not what I want. There's a there's another place where we are told that the Levites are Yotzei Tzava. So Yotzei Tzava that we have here cannot mean only military army. Because mm. it applies to Levites too. Because it applies to, because it's used about mm. the Levites. I don't know why I didn't copy and paste that verse for you. I'm sorry. The Levites are, are called Yotzei Tzava. How can that be if they don't go out to war? They're protecting, they're surrounding the Mishkan, but also they're protecting the soul of Israel. And the others are protecting the body. Nice. This is the point. Exactly the point. So you have the Mishkan at the center of the people, right, who are either camped or or traveling. Either way, the Mishkan is at the center of the Edah, of the whole community. The Levite's job is to... Be Yotzei Tzava. The ones who go out to be the army of protecting the Mishkan. Protecting the Mishkan from what? Actually, not protecting, maybe protecting the people from the Mishkan, because when you go into the Mishkan, it's dangerous. It's because dangerous. what do we know about this? It's Sinai. It's Sinai. At Sinai, there had to be a protection so the people didn't encroach and therefore die. That can't change once they start being on the move and Sinai becomes portable. That can't change. Where God's kavod is, one must be careful. One must treat it as weighty. You do not have freedom of movement where the most intense experience of the divine is. You have to follow certain rules because it should be treated differently with awe that it's powerful on all levels. So as they carry Sinai with them, you need the Levites to again hold that space as supercharged so that the people are aware that within their midst there is that which is not to be treated lightly. And if we treat the awesome lightly, what happens? Bad stuff. <laughs> <laughs> More bad stuff. Bad, bad stuff. Bad. When we treat the awesome, when we treat the holy, when we treat the sacred, when we treat our relationship, our contact with the divine lightly, we die. Bad stuff. Rabbi Renner? This word, Sava, is really interesting. I've been learning it for some months with my rabbi, uh, Steve Sager, and it does something really cool in English as well. Um, if you translate that, we see Adonai Tzvaot a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Host, uh, right? As the Lord of Hosts, that's right. right. 
And that word actually does the same thing in English. It both can imply hostility as well as hospitality. Think of a hostel as in a place where you stay, where you are kept and guaranteed in that way. And hostel is also as in hostilities, as in uh, confrontation. But sort of packed within that is this idea that this sava, this host, is guaranteeing you, is keeping you. This thing implies both security and uh, defense in this way, but it also has this piece of protecting you. It can be deployed uh, in service of keeping you safe in that way. So the Leviim, in this case, it seems to me, what they're doing is they are hosting the Mishkan. Um, they are not going out to hostility, but that Savah, that works in both places. But it could flip way. really quick, because if, right. if an Israelite encroaches, what is the Levite supposed to do? They are then hostile. <laughs> they are then hostile. They are supposed to kill the Israelite for encroachment. Mm-hmm. All right. To protect right, the sacred space from ritual, cultic encroachment by somebody not entitled to be there. Yes? Absolutely. Lovely. Yes? One thing that we talked about, I wonder if it's relevant, which is the concept of purity um, with respect to the Mishkan and the role of the Levites. Because what's going on in the outside, particularly in the military formation, is anything but pure. <laughs> Some real heavy and pure stuff is going on. So, in a sense, uh, their job is to protect the purity at the core of the camp. Nice. Because, and Rabbi Schweiger talks about this when he talks about what is the relationship, where would I ultimately go with this, where am I hopefully going to get to um, soon, because I know we're, we're ending, um, is exactly this idea that, that if the people going out, the military, the Yotzeit Sava, do not have this at the center, then what they go out to do will be atrocities. Hmm. So it's at the center of your heart. It's at the so he he says we, you know, of course, this is a metaphor for us, right? That's the this is why it still resonates so profoundly. Is if we don't have protection around the purity at the center and awareness of that purity, then anything we go out to do will be very dangerous and potentially really damaging. That our job is to be Yotzei Tzava. That we have to be Yotzei Tzava this way. Internally, we have to do our work. We're going to sit at 11.15, yes? And we're going to do our work of turning inward. Yotzei Tzava. The Levites are deployed inward. And to guard and hold that sacred center. So that B'nai Yisrael can be an Am Kadosh. So that the people Israel can be a holy people. And when they yotze, when they go out yotze tzava to deal with life, to deal with the world, to confront the difficulties, the vagaries of reality, it will be informed by what is sacred and at the center, which is God's kavod. This is the ultimate point of Tif Kedu. That is our role. That is our that is our purpose. And when we do that, se'u et rosh, we lift up the head, we lift up our dignity, right? Because we have a holy purpose to engage with the world with the sacred at the center. Would it be consistent with this iconic idea of the Mishkan that you get your elite Levites in itself sort of says this is beyond the norm because they could have been other people sent to guard and create this but this is different this this elevates this to a more significant point that makes it separate from anything else yes I, I think that is the whole cultic system is based on they have their role right. it doesn't make them better than you but doesn't it make them better than you I no mean, no it may, it's different. It makes them, it makes them more at risk than you. They accept the responsibility in your place of guarding the sancta. Because if someone breaches and the Levites don't take care of it, what happens? The Levite gets it. The Levite's dead. If somebody makes it past them, 
past the guard and gets in here who's not supposed to be in here. It's the Levites who get it, who are zapped. Because they cause a breach. And now you're, you know, have nuclear energy coming out and you have no hazmat suit on. So is the Israelite the lowdown here? I mean, is that why you can kill an Israelite for breaching this? Yes. Yes. It's a little, the Rodef is a, it's a complicated concept and it involves other things, but essentially it is a justified killing, yes, in pursuit of making sure everything is protected. So this, this makes me nervous <laughs> because if you think of all the wars that have been the most terrible, at the core, the people that are fighting them believe that they are, that they are protected and doing God's will. So think of Normandy. Okay. <laughs> I mean, right. I'm no, not I mean, saying it shouldn't make us nervous. I'm saying this is the reality of the human condition, and I'm glad that some people were willing to storm that beach and give the ultimate sacrifice and take whatever life they had to to make sure that radical evil did not take over the world. But radical evil often claims this too. Of course. Yeah. That is why. That is why you had better have Sinai at the center. You'd better have a Mishkan at the center before you deploy your troops, and they better carry at their center Kavod. But don't the um, Islamic extremists also believe that they are? I mean, isn't someone who's a suicide bomber protected in the same way? Don't they believe? Of course. Of so course. How do you know what's right? Well, you have to figure that out, don't you? <laughs> that that the, I'm, I'm not being flip when I say this is the struggle. This is the whole point. Is you better be engaging with these talks. You better sit in meditation starting at eleven fifteen. You better be davening. You better be doing tzedakah. You better be in a food line. You better. We have to do all those things that we are called into by the tradition so that we stay in touch with, is this a moral move or not? And if you want to see some of the most amazing literature, look at the literature the Israelis are studying about what is a just war. What are just war practices? Because they have to go to war. They live in a war zone. They don't have a choice. Neither do these people. This is written, neither do we. We, right? Pick it. Wherever it is that we think we don't have a choice, we have to go fight. We the, the obligation, the challenge is how do we engage with the messy, awful stuff of real life in real human society? We have to question all of our actions and weigh it and up against our morals and ethics and values as we understand them at the time in the situation. That is a heavy burden that we don't take seriously enough, I don't think. Right? We let the government decide. We pay our taxes, and then, oh, we're invading Iraq. Look at that. So, I don't know about you, but I was horrified that we were doing that. I knew morally and ethically, well, first of all, it was stupid, but we knew that. We knew there was going to be a power vacuum. We knew that, but we went anyway, right? So, all that arrogance, you know, all that stuff... Some of us knew that, but some of us didn't. There it is. Was that an evil act? Was that a just war? Well, it depends who you're talking to. But what didn't happen was we didn't, as a citizenry and as journalists, we did not have this at the center of the discussion. We let it happen without very much protesting without very much noise about why it would be wrong. Would the settler movement today embrace numbers, embrace this discussion, and say, yep, that's us? Everybody does who has a position that they are ready to defend with their lives. Everybody does. But this one seems weird because they would look at this as this is our land. This land is so critical to us. This is our mission. Sure, but this was in the midbar. This wasn't in the land. This is in the midbar. So we as a (laughs) they quote Joshua, generally speaking, not a midbar because that's in the land, right? So Rabbi Renner say they they quote the book of Joshua where there's the conquest. That's where they go. This is the midbar, and 
we as Americans would say this is our land, but guess what? We took it from somebody else, didn't we? And murdered them. Okay, was that okay? Ask, right? I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not pointing to you to answer. Right, that's the question. If you ask them, they would have said yes. But would we now... If we turn to our values and our morals and our ethics, would, would we say that that genocide of the Native American peoples was in any way justified or okay? I don't... Well, is it ever explicated in the Torah when it's okay? Yes, okay. yes. There's there's huge discussion that you're supposed to parlay first. <laughs> Unless we're talking about Joshua, the conquest, where it's like, go take it. You know, go beat them up, kick them out, kill them, take their land. Which, by the way, let's remind ourselves, never happened. Never happened. <laughs> it never happened. There was no conquest. I mean, there were battles, for sure, but there was no conquest. So, um, it, like, the Israelites arise from within Canaanite society, yes? So it's a fantasy. The whole conquest is a fantasy. Not that it's a great fantasy, but, right, so... Wait, what was I talking about? Oh, so so just so just war is you know like if you're supposed to try to parlay and try to make peace, war is not supposed to be the first option unless you're talking about the Book of Joshua. So um, and then there are things you can't do even in war. So there are people like Mickey said that you must exempt. They are different if they have planted a field and haven't harvested it yet. If they're married, right, and and just started to taste what that bliss of union is about and like that you can't ask them to go to a war right and you can't do what about fruit trees you can't cut them down you can't cut down fruit trees if you're even if you're taking the enemy's territory right fruit trees take three to five years to produce you you can't just wantonly destroy things that you don't need to destroy to survive the battle you can't just Wantonly, because you just drop, like blow it all up, right? You have to execute carefully and respectfully. There, uh, there's uh, uh, an educational institution that I forget who it is did a survey in history of the number of people killed in wars and how much of that was religious wars and how much of that was non-religious wars, and by far more people were killed in non-religious wars than religious wars. So. It certainly is true that at time religion of one sort or another has been used to justify war. But, you know, Pol Pot in Cambodia wasn't about religion. Right. Um, the, the Chinese Cultural Revolution wasn't about religion. Stalin in the 30s wasn't about religion. If you just look at our, you know. So, yes, people do that, but I, I've heard, and maybe people in this room have heard too, people would say, oh, well, religion is bad because... Look at all the people who were killed before because of religion. People were killed because we're human beings. So, the, so this is an important point and one that brings us to to, to the closing of our of our learning, which is, we, it's not religion that causes us to kill people and take things from them that we want. It's greed. It's lust. It's power. It's arrogance. It's entitlement. It's a lot of things, selfishness, envy, envy cons- the, the desire to consume more stuff, control. control, to deal with our fear. Control is all about I'm afraid on some level of something, right? And that's why we do these things. Judaism is not saying, Israelite religion is not saying we're better or immune. It's saying we are the same. We have those exact same tendencies, those exact same motivations to do terrible things. So what's the answer? As long as you're human and as long as that's going on, how do we protect against ourselves? And that is where this comes in still for us as an important teaching. Is What is it we do Right here at KI, how is it that we keep the sacred at the center to allow us to be Yotzeit Sava to protect that? So that when we are Yotzeit Sava, we go out to deal with whatever it is we do in the world. We do it with justice and compassion and awareness of the sanctity of all life. The planet itself. And how do we cultivate awe? Because when we are in 
awareness of awe, of the magnitude, of the gift of existence, capital E, it changes how we behave. And we believe that is the way, ultimately, if we all live more informed from that place, awe, as Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel says, is the beginning of humility. And when we can behave truly with humility in respect of the sacred, we will create a world that is at peace. It should happen speedily and in our day. Good Shabbos. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.